On this week's 51%, a woman tells her story about being thrown off track and embracing the change and community she gains. A sports studies professor discusses Major League Baseball's first female general manager. You know, being first is important. But being only is a little bit scary. And older women, beware the chair. A new study shows the harmful effect of sitting for long periods of time. I'm Allison Dunn, and this is 51%. Artist and producer Ari Golden returns to 51% with an audio portrait of Leah, a woman who embraces her life force, change, and community. It's part of Golden's Bending in 2020 series. How do you get through the really, really hard times? Not everybody does make it with their life force intact. Grief, like when we actually let ourselves go into the deep sadness of a time, can be very, very enlivening. The value and the necessity of grieving and that full-bodied wailing and how that brings life into the room, that expression. It's like, it's ironic. If you, can, if you can be so alive in the grief and the loss and the pain, willingness to meet each moment fully and committed, be like all in, just committed for that ride. When does this story and how it was lived through me, it really began. I was four years old. My mom was a painter. And so we had all kinds of creative things from her friends around. And one of them was this beautiful tapestry that had been handwoven. And it was of this woman giving flowers away to these children. And on the tapestry was embroidered in Leah, said my name, Leah, give what you have. To others, it may mean more than you dare to think. I really remember being a little kid and reading it over and over and over again and not having a clue what it meant. And then it all began to make sense when I was 29 years old and I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer and they were going to cut across my larynx and they told me I might lose my voice. My whole life was about writing and theater and, and telling stories. And I really wanted to go to Yale and get a degree in playwriting. And I was in my very first relationship with my very first love. And we discovered that we have very different outlooks on life. And when I told him I wanted to write a book or that I told him I wanted to go to Yale or I told him I wanted to do this, and he said, you can't do that. And I listened to him. I could blame him for that choice, but the truth of it is, he spoke out loud a fear that I had inside of myself, and I listened to it, and I acted on it, and he amplified it. You know, So it really taught me about, be careful of the company that you keep. So I went and I got a master's in social work. Six weeks before graduation, I went for this job interview, and I remember thinking at that moment, if I take this job, it's going to kill me. And on that moment, I put my hand on my neck and I felt this huge swelling on my neck. And I said, I'm sorry, I actually have to call a doctor right now. I have to stop the interview. I actually ended up with an amazing practitioner and she said, this might be cancer. 
you have to follow this all the way through. I didn't believe her. There was no way. I, I had just come back from doing service work in a developing country. I thought maybe I just had some lymph swelling. So the miracle of the story is that that graduate school that I was so resistant and so angry about going to, that school happened to be the medical school that had discovered a technique to identify the unique kind of cancer that I had. They asked me not to leave the office because they wanted to give me the diagnosis right then. And so I'm sitting there and they call me into this small room and they pass this massive contract across the table to me as they explained to me that I have a very extreme case of fastly growing cancer and that they want to take immediate action, the most extreme approach to dealing with it, which is removing the thyroid along with the tumor. And then I could lose my voice. And then they, then they give you this contract. You're, you're signing away. They, so they, signed, they, they scheduled my surgery that day. And I just remember up to that moment, life had organized in such a way where I had really mastered being a victim. You're about to lose your voice. I mean, if you want to go play victim in the world, this is it. You know, this is the crowning moment. And I realized that I did not want to be the queen of victim. I really wanted to be something else. And in this moment, and it happened so fast, I don't even know what part of my soul came alive. It was the, it was the initiation that I must have been waiting for or getting ready for or prepared for. I saw the escape hatch and I jumped through it. And rather than sobbing, I started laughing. I just started making jokes. I said, when he said that they were going to cut across my larynx and they might, I might lose my voice, I said, ah, oh, you just tell that to all the pretty girls, don't you? And something inside me said, you're going to laugh your way through every sucky part of this experience. And so every time I went into the hospital, every time I met with a nurse practitioner, I had a job and my job was to make us laugh. Look, so much of life we actually aren't in control of. You know, every time we get in the car on the highway, you know, it's just a freaking miracle that we end up where we end up. But we have this illusion that we're in control. And then there's a few moments in our lives where we get this extraordinary gift, where we get to really see that we are not in control, that we actually don't really know what's going to happen the next day. And to be so alive in that and so alive in the terror of that. You know, I look back at this time and it was terrifying. I was terrified. I was terrified to go underneath the knife. I was terrified not to know what was going to be on the other side of my life. I tried to control what I could. I researched and I researched and I researched. And I was in such a deep story of what did I do to myself to make this happen, to get sick. And so I didn't want to tell anybody. And thankfully, once again, I was getting a master's in social work. So all my teachers were counselors. And so when I tried to keep it a secret and it was just like, I'll be back in two weeks, you know, they're like, no, Leah, you are not keeping this a secret. You have to tell people. You have to call on people. So it was like lesson number one. How to be part of community is asking for help when you need it. I was taking a class on spirituality and social work. And so I had just read all these research studies on the power of prayer. And so I, I did something where I asked some friends to pray for me during that time. And a couple of things happened. Like one, my mailbox started filling with cards 
people I didn't even know were sending me cards. I, I, I don't even know. It was just like the community has uh, gathered in like this, this loving way around me in this moment. Really getting to see how much love was in my life in a way that I'd never been able to before. And that's interesting because when you're in the victim, you're always trying to pull people towards you. And when I left that role and when I st stood in this other place, and it wasn't about feeling bad for me. It was more a request to champion my adventure in this wild journey. And it was a different way of living in the world and people showed up for me in a different way. And it changed my story. I was really just following the life force and some part of my soul that was really ready to change and ready to meet the moment and ready to meet the fear. Well, now I see how powerful it is to claim a different way of living. I would say my soul took over, like something beyond me took over than my rational mind. And now I feel like I had that experience. And so now I'm very aware of, all right, what am I in service to? And how am I choosing to live my life? I'm going to be the victor in the story. Then it doesn't matter what happens around me. I am going to meet the world around me with love. If I know what my role is, then I'm that role in whatever is happening. If I choose it. So if I choose to be the lover, you know, I will always feed my neighbors. I will always make sure I have enough food to give away to others the bridge builder. I'm always going to have extra tools in my toolbox. You know, I'm always going to be there to help build a path to the world I most want to live in because I know that's the role that I'm consciously choosing. I'm consciously carving it out now. And I feel like in these times, that's really what keeps me sane and simple. The story isn't about the facts. It's about the meaning. It's about the experience. It's about the story of the soul in context to the facts and information. Put on your super spidey x-ray sexiest pair of goggles that will show you who your allies are in the world. And realize that allies come to us in unexpected ways. For me, one of my most amazing allies was a garden. And that garden saved my life because the depression did come. I did start seeing the world in gray. A, it gave me something to take care of. I walked that garden every day and that garden, the spirals, they taught me two things. They taught me gratitude. I didn't know about gratitude before then. And every day I started to say what I was grateful for as I walked to the center of the spiral of that garden. And then it taught me how to pray. And I started to pray for my life. It was the last garden that I had before this one. And when COVID happened, I started planting seeds again. And I really do feel like every time I read the latest crazy thing that makes me want to lose it. I kind of run to the garden. I'm like, I'll be right back. You know? <laughs> Let me just go water, water the radishes. <laughs> Watch the tomato plant growing. But there's something so like it teaches you everything. It teaches you everything, you know, about how to tend to life.
gardening is is elusive and then it looks really easy anyone can put a seed in the earth and water it and the seed's going to do what it does it's going to sprout but will it thrive will it fruit will it be generative you know that's then up to like how good of a foundation did you give it to thrive within and then how well will you nurture it and did you put it in the right place i think that's one of the things that that being with the seeds have really taught me not all plants will thrive in the same place to be so astute is to see each being as individual, understanding what it really needs and what it really wants outside of the picture of the whole. You know, cultures of ancient times, when initiation was an everyday part of, it, of you know, everyone's life, that they would go out and, the, and they would discover their gifts and that, that the community would see them and they would name them and they would give them a place to live and those gifts would... Um, continue to grow and grow and grow. And I feel like so much in our time, we don't have that expression in community. And we don't have communities that know how to know how important it is that they name and say what they see in terms of other people's gifts. And that that gives those gifts a place to live. And so I would pray that our next generation of little ones get to be raised in great communities that know the power of their word and the power of their gifts. Ari Golden is an artist and producer. You can find out more about her work at arigolden.com, that's A-H-R-I-G-O-L-D-E-N.com, and follow her on Instagram at Ari Golden. In November, a woman who started her Major League Baseball career as an intern became the Major's highest-ranking woman in baseball operations when she was hired as general manager of the Miami Marlins. According to the Marlins, Kim Ang is believed to be the first female GM in the four major North American professional sports leagues. Dr. Amy Bass, professor of sports studies at Manhattanville College in Westchester County, New York, talks about this first. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple firsts that she carries with her, right? Um, you know, thinking about uh, a historic place for a woman in baseball, a historic place for an Asian American in baseball, Um so I think, you know, I was kind of surprised because I'm always on Twitter um, when these moments happen and I wrote about it and the reaction, uh, I was pleased with how, you know, why did this take so long instead of, um, I think there was one tweet that said something like, great, now they have someone to make sandwiches for them. Um, so you still have that garbage that always that always comes out. But the why did it take so long? I really wish it, it wasn't posed as a question. We know exactly why it's taken so long. Um, you know, she's been in baseball. She's a lifer. She's, she's been in baseball 30 years. She applied for her first, um, you know, big position, GM position in 2005. You know, so I think that the, that asking why did it take so long, you know, is, is more than a rhetorical question. I think it's a question that we sort of have to get over because we know the answer. So why don't we do some work on it? What about, though, the focus on, okay, there's this big focus on the first, which, of course, is warranted. Um, but, you yep. know, if, if, a male, if, if a male were named, the focus would be on the qualifications and the history of that person um, in, in his wins, right, in, or what he's done for, for the team. Was that eclipsed by the first, and should it have been? Well, I actually think that you can't separate the two. I think that it's really important to talk about that, that first of all, that what are her qualifications was posed because, 
you know, very often these positions are filled by known entities. And and so one of the things that we're seeing when we follow someone like Kim Ang is someone who took a different path, right? This isn't a star player who went into coaching or went to law school or went into politics. You know, there's all these different pathways. And so one of the, the big pieces about her is that she's never played the game. And and baseball has, has had some transformations, right? Sort of the Moneyball era, which made sport analytics and numbers so important. And now a very different pathway to a front office or to a position of prominence someone who started as an intern and, and worked her way up. Um, and I think that that's also exciting for pretty much everybody because that's changing, you know, sort of what does it mean to be qualified? Um, we've often seen that for <laughs> those of us who are female and might find themselves in a locker room. You know, A, you don't belong here. What are you doing here? But but also, you know, how could you really write about football? You never played it. Um and so I think that that's, that's an interesting aspect of the sports world that's almost an exceptional aspect of the sports world. Um, and, and her story, that, that's an important part of her story, too. Yeah, that's really interesting, that point. Um, you know, we're, look, we're seeing that in, in a lot of sectors of our society, right? Pathways to getting toward the top. Um, I want to leave politics out of it, but that's certainly one example. Um, so <laughs> so uh, I did want... You can't leave politics out of anything. Um, so I wanted to know also, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, it's great that she's the first, but you want to see others, right? You want to see this be the pathbreaker and let's not be the lone star, you know, among a number of years. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that we're seeing we're seeing inroads, but there's still such exceptional inroads um, that we're still talking about them. And and I think that you know being first is important, but being only is a little bit scary, right? So you know we saw that uh, you know just before this exciting news came out of MLB when the Houston Texans fired their VP of communications. Um, and she was the first and only woman to be the head of PR, the head of a communications team for an NFL team. So in one fell swoop, right, one person gets fired and you're back to no one. And so I think that that first and only piece is that's what makes it it makes it disturbing that, you know, basketball, which I think is arguably I don't even think it's really arguably the most progressive of the major sports. And, and let's be clear, when we're talking about the major sports, we are talking about men's teams, right? We're, we're talking about um, basketball and football and baseball and, and a little bit of hockey, I think, but we're not talking about soccer and we're not talking about softball. Um, but those firsts are, are, are onlys in so many cases, right? So, so that's where we can erase, you know, what we might consider to be a progressive step in one fell swoop. Dr. Amy Bass is an author and professor of sports studies at Manhattanville College in Purchase, New York focusing on sport, culture, and politics. She is chair of the Division of Social Science and Communication. Her most recent book came out in 2018, One Goal, a coach, a team, and the game that brought a divided town together. She's also an Emmy Award winner for her work with NBC TV at the London Olympics in 2012. And now KALW Sandy Broy presents what he calls Six Degrees of Kamala Harris. My mother, Shamala Gopalan Harris, was always in our hearts. Uh, when she came here from India at the age of 19, she maybe um, didn't quite imagine this moment, but she believed so deeply in an America where a moment like this is possible. Kamala Harris, Vice President-elect of the United States, marking so many firsts, 
first woman, first black woman, first woman of South Asian descent. And it's no surprise that her mother's ancestral village in India has rolled out a virtual red carpet. They prayed for her. They drew her name on the ground. Now they're rejoicing for her with firecrackers, music and sweets. And every news network is tracking down every Kamala Harris uncle and aunt they can find. And I feel happy that my sister Shamla, her mother, would have been very happy and proud of her daughter. Everyone wants a piece of the first female vice president of the United States, or at least a few degrees of separation from her. A friend of mine who hails from the same part of India as Harris's mother says she got a joke forwarded on the family WhatsApp group, even as the networks were just about calling the election for Joe Biden. It goes like this. Actually, Kamala Harris is Padmanabhan's sister's son-in-law's father's sister's husband's brother. You know, P.V. Gopalan's granddaughter. I've seen her Chennai cousins at my niece's child's first birthday. This is Sandeep Roy in Kolkata. The irony is in the rush to claim kinship with Kamala Harris, Indians brush their own rather checkered history when it comes to race under the carpet. A friend Riley wondered how many of the people rushing to claim her as their own would have been so accepting and enthusiastic about welcoming the child of mixed Indian and black heritage into their community 50 years ago or even now. As comedian Hassan Minaj says in a recent episode of Patriot Act. We love black America. Yeah, on screen and our living rooms. But if a black man walks into your living room or wants to date, God forbid, marry your daughter, you call the cops. The newsletter Splainer.in did a roundup of how Bollywood films treat blackness. The answer in one emoji is facepalm. In the film Fashion, Priyanka Chopra of Quantico fame is a model whose life spirals out of control. But the way the filmmaker shows she has hit rock bottom is when she wakes up one morning next to a black man. West Indian cricketer Darren Sammy said recently he didn't realize that a word he was often called in India, even by teammates, was actually a Hindi slur for black, not something that meant stallion. I'm very disappointed and deserve an apology from you guys. He moved on, retracted that demand, but what was striking was the reaction or rather non-reaction of teammates and officials who just professed ignorance as if this casual racism was something out of the ordinary in India. I think Indians would bristle if anyone called us racist. After all, in the India that I grew up in, Nelson Mandela had been given India's highest civilian honor. As a schoolboy, I had learned Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous speech as part of elocution and speech contests. My poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. Yet I will never forget what a colleague in San Francisco once told me. He said, oh, you Indians are brown, but as soon as you come to America, you want to become white and get as far away from black as possible. 
as Indians celebrate a person of Indian heritage being elected the vice president of the United States, it would be good to not just bask in that glory, but also remember that troubled history. Even though many of the strides Indian Americans have made in America have only happened because black people paved the way. Perhaps Kamala Harris, in her very person, gives us the chance to confront that history and learn from it. As for my own degrees of separation from Harris, once when she was campaigning for district attorney in San Francisco, I ran into her in the Castro and walked into a gay bar with her. I'll be dining out for a while on that line. I once went to a gay bar with the vice president of America. Dream with ambition. Lead with conviction. And see yourselves in a way that others may not, simply because they've never seen it before. This is Sandeep Roy in Kolkata. Even with regular physical activity, older women ages 50 to 79 who spend more waking hours in sedentary behaviors such as sitting or lying down have an increased risk of heart failure, serious enough to require hospitalization. This is according to new research published recently in Circulation, Heart Failure, an American Heart Association journal. The lead author of the study says that for heart failure prevention, we need to promote taking frequent breaks from prolonged sitting or lying down in addition to trying to achieve guideline levels of physical activity such as those recommended by the American Heart Association. Dr. Michael Lamont says very few studies have been published on sedentary time and heart failure risk, and even fewer have focused on older women, in whom both sedentary behavior and heart failure are quite common. Researchers examined the records of almost 81,000 postmenopausal women, an average age of 63 years old, from the Women's Health Initiative. None of the participants had been diagnosed with heart failure when the study began, and during an average of nine years of follow-up, 1,402 women were hospitalized due to heart failure. Compared with women who reported spending fewer than six and a half hours per day sitting or lying down, the risk of heart failure hospitalization was 15% higher in women reporting 6.6 to 9.5 hours daily sitting or lying down, and 42% higher in women reporting more than 9.5 hours daily spent sitting or lying down. Lamont says the message is simple. Sit less, move more. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Tina Rennick for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. Our theme music is Glow in the Dark by Kevin Bartlett. This show is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this show again, sign up for our podcast or visit the 51% archives on our website at wamc.org. This week's show is number 1637.